0: This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised.
1: We just had a plane crash into of the World Trade Center. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Dumble. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane... Has crashed into the World Trade Center we don't 20
0: years ago on September 11, 2001 terrorists carried out an attack on New York City
1: two passenger planes within 18 minutes of each other smashing into the World Trade Center's Dr. Jay still-
0: First responders rushed to the Twin Towers downtown Manhattan quickly became a war zone.
2: This is as close as we can get to the base of the World Trade Center. You can see the firemen
0: assembled here, the police officers, FBI agents, and you can see the two towers. A huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. One hour and 42 minutes after the first plane hit, both towers were gone. The tower is literally uh, crumbling into the, the streets of Manhattan there. 110 stories tall, two towers built in 1973, and uh, they have now both come down after this terror.
3: We uh, advise you to, uh, to find your family, make sure that uh, everyone's safe, get together, and, uh, and just uh, stay out of the streets at
0: this point until we get a chance to uh, assess. That evening, as broadcasters recycled the day's events, most New Yorkers retreated indoors and checked in with their loved ones. More than 2,700 people died from terrorism in Lower Manhattan that day. 412 victims were first responders, including 23 of NYPD's own. Later that night, on a street in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, one person died of a gunshot wound. His name was Henrik Szywiak. To this day, his murder remains unsolved. I'm Detective Sergeant Wally Zions, and this is Breaking the Case, a podcast series written and produced by NYPD Studios and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Twenty years after 9-11, detectives are hoping for information that will lead to an arrest in the city's sole homicide on that day. Coming up after the break... In the media, Henrik Szywiak's homicide was lost in the wider tragedy of 9-11, but one publication covered it in depth.
4: My name is Ewa karne I worked for the Polish Daily News, and that was a very big story in the Polish community, since everything we reported for the Polish newspaper was looked at um, through a Polish lens.
0: For many in the Polish community, the victim's story was their story.
4: Henryk Szywiak was a 46-year-old Polish immigrant who came to New York from Krakow in Poland about 11 months before 9-11.
0: Szywiak had a wife and two kids in Krakow. He was unemployed, laid off from his low-paying job with the Polish railroad.
4: Poland at that time, I can tell you, because I came to the U.S. around that same time, it was still kind of recovering from years of communism. It wasn't a member of the European Union yet, so the, the economic situation was very tough. Uh, there was no job prospects, and many people just looked for ways to, to go somewhere abroad where, where they could just make some money and, and support their families.
0: Shiviak's sister, in far Rockaway, had been trying to get him to come to New York for years.
4: He came finally and decided to stay for a little bit. He basically overstayed his visa and decided to, to just do any work he can do to support his family that he left behind in Poland.
0: On the morning of 9-11, Szywiak was working at a construction site in lower Manhattan. He was sent home after the first plane crashed into the World Trade Center. He knew his work site wasn't reopening anytime soon. He immediately began looking for a new job.
4: Remember that this is a guy who is here with one goal, to make money and support his family back in Poland. And according to his sister, he was a workaholic. All his uh, life evolved around looking for jobs.
0: With the help of a Polish employment agency, he found a job for $10 an hour cleaning a supermarket in Flappish, Brooklyn. His first shift started that evening at midnight.
4: And he calls his wife and tells her that he lost his job downtown, but he might be able to get something else. And she begs him, don't go tonight. Tonight is really, really dangerous. You know, you don't know what's what's gonna happen. You don't know what's happening in New York. Uh, Just stay at home and wait till tomorrow. But he already signed the paperwork. He feels obliged to go. He doesn't speak much English. He doesn't know New York well. He took a subway map uh, from his uh, landlady. They look at the map, you know, remember that was 2001. So there was no Google. He couldn't just figure out where he's supposed to go. The
0: supermarket is on Albany Avenue, which runs north-south through the middle of Brooklyn. Szywiak sees on the map that the Utica stop on the A train is close to Albany Avenue. But it's the wrong end of Albany Avenue.
4: And he's confused. He doesn't realize that he's um, about four miles away from his destination.
0: He walks about half a mile west along Fulton Street. At Albany, he should have gone south.
4: Instead of going south, he goes north. And he ends up on this block of Albany Avenue between Fulton and Decatur. And that block is known for drug activity, for robberies.
0: City 911, do you need police, fire or medical?
4: The 911 call
3: came in at 1142 p.m. When we got to the scene that night, Mr. Sibwiak was on the sidewalk. He had already been pronounced dead at that time.
0: That's Detective George Harvey. On the night of September 11th, 2001, he was on duty in
3: the 79 Precinct Detective Squad in Brooklyn. A couple of vehicles on the block also had bullet holes in them. Uh, so when he was getting shot at, he was running across the street. There were
0: no eyewitnesses. Neighbors said they heard yelling, then gunshots. Seven bullet shell casings were found in the area, all belonging to the same 40 caliber handgun.
3: He got shot and he had run up the stairs and was knocking on one of the Brownstone's doors to try to get in, looking for help.
0: Nobody opened the door. Shivia collapsed at the bottom of the staircase. He died from a single bullet to the chest. Police found his bag, his briefcase, and his wallet was $75 in cash. There was no video of the incident. Video cameras weren't as prevalent then. A number of nearby residents were interviewed, but no one had any information about the
3: perpetrator. That's a tight-knit block, and he was a complete outsider that nobody knew. Shiviak wore a distinct outfit
0: that night, camouflage pants and matching jacket with black boots.
4: One theory that his sister offered was that he had this camouflage outfit that apparently he really, really liked. And so he looked kind of like a paramilitary, you know, an army guy. He barely spoke English, so his sister thought that maybe the guys that that he got into a dispute with, maybe they thought he was a terrorist.
0: There's no evidence to support or dispute the theory that Chiviac was mistaken for a terrorist. Retired detective Michael Prate thinks it's unlikely.
2: Albany Avenue, that little small block between Fulton Street and Decatur, was a super heavy gang block. Not just gangs, but drugs, right? It was always violent. At the end of the day, I could personally think of like a thousand other places that there would be a terrorist as opposed to Albany Avenue. The more likely scenario is a lot more random.
4: Jobs might take you in the weird places in New York that you are not familiar with. And that's what happened to him, you know.
2: He just made a wrong turn on a wrong block after getting off at the wrong station. If he makes a
3: left-hand turn onto Albany Avenue, he's still alive. And there's no other homicides in the city that night. We'll be back after the break.
0: Before the break, we learned how the terrorist attacks on 9-11 led Henrik Šiviak to an unfamiliar block in Brooklyn, where he met with tragedy. That day, detectives in the 7-9 were drawn away from Bed-Stuy towards the mayhem of lower Manhattan.
2: My name is Michael Prate. I was a uh, New York City detective. I uh, joined the police department in 1985 and uh, worked almost my entire career in the 7-9 precinct. 12 in uniform patrol, and then 15 on the investigative side uh, in the detective bureau. On the morning of September 11, 2001, I, along with the other members of the detective squad that were working that day, we started our day uh, really early, like uh, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. They went out to arrest a suspect in one of their homicide cases. We went to a couple of different locations, and we weren't able to find our guy.
0: Then it was 10.63, time for meal.
2: It's kind of funny, right? The day was so beautiful as the sun came up and everything. While having breakfast, we
1: heard a noise, like a bang. And I remember one detective, Matty Collins, say to me, "Hey, boss, did you hear that?"
0: That's retired Lieutenant Tom Joyce. On 9/11, he was the commanding officer of the 79 squad.
1: We walked up to pay our check, and while we were at the cash register, someone said, "Hey, did you hear? A plane just hit one of the World Trade Centers." By the time we had walked outside and we were assembling on the sidewalk to, you know, plan for the rest of the day's activities, someone came running up to us and said, "You know, officers, officers." Two planes hit the World Trade Center. And we're we're like, what? Like, you can't even be serious. Like, this doesn't make any sense. We didn't know how to process it. And the gentleman was telling us, no, I'm telling you, I just saw it on the news. Two planes, they're talking about two planes hitting both World Trade Centers.
0: They decided to go to the nearest tall building to see for themselves.
1: And we go to the top and we're watching the smoldering... World Trade Centers and we couldn't believe what we were seeing and you know right away the detectives were saying come on let's go let's go let's go and of course like most first responders almost all first responders you know we wanted to go but I had been at the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and I remember distinctly how all of the emergency apparatus and the confusion and mayhem in lower Manhattan guaranteed that we could not drive to the World Trade Center at this point and I said Gentlemen, if we go over the bridge, we're going to have to literally run a very, very long distance to get to the World Trade Center. And I don't know how much help we're going to be and how fast we can get there. So what we do is we just put ourselves into the queue and made sure that Communications and Central knew we were available if they needed us.
0: After the first tower fell, they headed back to their command. Some detectives were sent to the local hospital. At that time, it was expected that hospitals would fill up with casualties. Another group of detectives from the 7 spent the day directing traffic
2: at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Again, here's prate People had already began to stream over the Brooklyn and Manhattan bridges. Thousands and thousands of people coming over the bridge. We were opening up all the traffic, clearing it for emergency vehicles to come into the city, and then for the regular traffic trying to flee.
0: In the middle of the afternoon, Joyce got a call. A suspect in a high-profile homicide case was being released from the hospital and needed to be taken to central booking.
1: If he committed a, a lower-level felony or misdemeanor, we would have probably just let him go, issued some sort of desk appearance ticket, and then asked for his return. Um, but because it was such a serious, heinous homicide, we had no choice but to process this arrest.
0: Two more detectives were sent to take care of that. And the World Trade Center's falling. At around 8 o'clock, when the detectives from the first wave went off-duty, they didn't go home. They went to ground zero, where the search and rescue mission was underway.
2: There was the beginning of the Bucket Brigade starting to move uh, stuff out. Really, even now thinking back on it, it was just totally chaos. A lot of the sirens going off for the buildings that they thought might potentially next collapse.
0: Back at the 7-9, as the worst day in New York's history was coming to a close, a call came over the radio. This is Joyce.
1: We received calls of shots fired, Albany and Decatur Street, and uh, we have a person shot. And we're like, like, this is just, can we really believe that this is happening?
3: When patrol came upstairs to tell us that we had a person shot and that they were likely to die, everyone in the detective squad couldn't believe what they were saying. They're like, the Twin Towers just fell a couple of hours ago, and... We're still gonna work on a homicide this night? Like, this is insane. Within minutes, patrol officers respond to the
0: scene, as well as two detectives from the 7-9.
3: We did the best we could with what we had
0: working that night. Typically, the NYPD has deep resources for homicide investigations. The crime scene unit collects forensic evidence. The precinct squad canvasses the area for witnesses. Sometimes detectives from vice, narcotics, or gang units show up too. But that night, most of the 79 squad was unavailable, and the crime scene unit was assigned to Ground Zero. The evidence collection unit was called instead. Again, here's Prate. Before he retired from the NYPD, he was the lead investigator on the case.
2: The evidence collection team—they did a phenomenal job. These are guys who usually respond to burglaries and car break-ins and do fingerprints. These guys were now the crime scene team. They took the pictures, they indexed and uh, recovered all of the evidence. You know, when you look back at the the Polaroid photos that were taken, there was a lot of people out on the street that night. So you know that people know exactly what happened on that block, right? But everyone was very scared or tentative to come forward with information. And
3: welcome to today on this Wednesday morning. A morning people are waking up in disbelief with heavy hearts, especially those who have lost loved ones or who are uncertain where their loved ones are at this hour.
2: This was the scene about 22 hours ago. As horrible as these pictures are of airplanes intentionally plunging into the World Trade Center, we still don't know how high the human toll will climb.
3: The early numbers are staggering, 266... People
1: on the four hijacked planes. The firefighters, the police officers, the rescue workers who've been laboring all nights here in lower Manhattan tell us now that they have daybreak that they confront three basic problems. Number one, there are still fires burning here in lower Manhattan. If you look behind me, you can see some.
0: In the days that followed, 9/11 created a new normal for New York City. For cops, that meant long hours and reassignments wherever help was needed. This
2: is Pray. We were split into shifts and we were all assigned to different places. As the commanding
0: officer of the detective squad, Lieutenant Tom Joyce was the one making the assignments.
1: We essentially started rotating and, and assigning either detectives to ground zero, the landfill, or the morgue. And that was the rotation for, I, I want to say, for six months. So we had some people doing the extra duties and then some people trying to keep the office going.
0: Detectives at the squad went back to re canvas the scene a few days after the shooting. And according to Joyce, the squad made another canvas a few months later. But they never got their eyewitnesses, Detective Prate explains.
2: The reason he shot, I believe, and I have always believed, was an attempted robbery. From what we understand is that he encountered a group on the corner and there was some type of tussle in the group. Uh, whether they were going to jump him or not. There was a tussle. He was able to flee uh, across Decatur Street, tried banging on the doors. There was a series of gunshots, and then you know, at some point he, he was deceased on the sidewalk. When he fled the, the initial group and he ran up the stairs to one of the buildings, I believe that's where it all went awry.
0: Some people recall seeing Shiviak walking around before the incident.
2: Through the years, you were able to get people or find people Um, who said, hey, we saw this guy walking down Fulton Street from the Kingston Avenue train station, right? And then, you know, you had other people that said, yeah, well, we saw him walking on the block. But again, it never really went any further than that.
0: On the 10th anniversary of 9-11, Eva Kanyedra Hulska produced a story for radio station WNYC. Here's how one neighbor described her initial response to the shooting.
4: I heard a couple of men out here talking, arguing, and, and I heard a shot. I don't know if I heard a shot or a couple of shots, but I didn't come to the window because I'm inside, you know. I don't dare come to the window.
0: Another neighbor had this to say.
4: The best time to go through, to walk Albany between Fulton and Decatur is from 7 a.m. until 11 o'clock a.m. Thereafter, you're on your own. They definitely warned me not to go around the corner because that block has a very bad reputation.
0: Even recently, there's been violence on the block. In November 2020, seven people were shot at a sweet 16 party. One of the victims, a 20-year-old woman was killed. And just a few doors down from that shooting, in October 2017, there was a homicide. Over the years, detectives made a point to ask anyone they came in contact with if they knew anything about the case.
2: could be a wallet theft. It could be uh, somebody whose car got broken into. People always ask the question, not just on the anniversary of 9-11, but I can tell you that guys from our squad always ask the question. You know, hey, did anybody hear anything? Did you ever know anything? It's the smallest little stuff that, you know, really cracks cases for you. Here's
3: Detective Harvey. What happens with some of the cases sometimes is that the witnesses or people see something, but they kind of hold that in their back pocket until they need help. You know, whether they get arrested for something serious or they're looking to get out of trouble or whatever, or they want to clear their conscience, and that's when they come forward. New technologies gave them new opportunities for leads.
1: This
0: is Joyce again.
1: We did all sorts of forensic testing and new advancements in technology on on the cartridge case.
3: And here's Harvey. There was numerous shell casings on the scene, and those shell casings never came back to any firearms never been recovered. So it's not even like, you know, if someone got arrested with that firearm, we'd be able to talk to that person because guns never been found. And it never matched up to anything else.
0: Every anniversary, the seven nine squad puts up Crime Stoppers posters. Detective Harvey reviews the case often and asks others to review it as well. On the 20th anniversary of the case, detectives are still hopeful.
2: This is Prey. I spent a couple of years doing the co-case stuff. It really is just a matter of the persistence of the detectives and just getting the right person at the right time. And here's Joyce.
1: We want to see this solved with an arrest and someone brought to justice, if not a clearance by arrest, certainly an exceptional clearance to at least being able to tell the whole story and know exactly who and what happened that day, you know, and you want to be able to do that for the community and the victim's family.
0: The loss of Henrik Siewiak was devastating for his family.
4: For the Polish community, it was a big story and, and there was a lot of sadness because so many people can relate to that, that very story where... You leave your family behind. You made this incredible sacrifice to go into the unknown. You don't speak this language. You, you don't know this city. It can be terrifying, you know? And it was so sad that his family was just left. His, his kids were left uh, orphans and his, his wife was left a widow.
0: Police ask anyone with information about the murder to call Crime Stoppers at 800-577-TIPS. There's a $12,000 reward for information that leads to an arrest and indictment. Callers should refer to a number BK-1373. All calls will be
1: kept confidential. To the detectives who are still out there working, those that have come after me that I never even met, don't let anything deter you from the truth because justice has to be served because these victims have, have gone through such a horrific experience that no one should ever have to go through.
0: Breaking the Case is written and produced by NYPD Studios and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to FDNY, CBS News, NBC News, CNN, ABC7 New York, Blue Dot Sessions, and New York One. Subscribe to Breaking the Case for a new episode every other Thursday in Season 2. If you like our show, please consider giving it five stars and recommending it to your friends. And follow the NYPD on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm Detective Sergeant Wally Zions. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be safe.